61% of people with ADHD have chronic financial issues, and they're serious chronic financial issues. So as we delve down into that, specialized with the ADHD community, we realized that it was about a lot more than math. It's all the emotional drivers beneath the surface. Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? A huge thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies for helping me get this episode out to you. I greatly appreciate his help, and he really came through with me in the last minute for this one. The rules for the upcoming photography-based ADHD Essentials scavenger hunt have been posted in the ADHD Essentials Facebook community. And the specific things that I'll be asking everyone to scavenge pictures of will be posted on Thursday of next week. I'm really looking forward to seeing what everyone finds and what they do with this particular contest. Once again, the prizes include a Lego set with over 2,500 pieces, a free consultation with me, and depending on how many people join, perhaps a few other things. And of course, check out our partner podcasts. ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maben. Finally, if you find meaning in this episode, or you've found meaning in past episodes, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It helps others find the show, and is critical to the growth of this podcast. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Rick Webster. Rick is the CEO and leader of Renify, a practical research-based financial education platform. He's also an ADHD coach and longtime associate of the ADHD organizations Ada and Chad. And he has ADHD. In this episode, Rick talks to us about financial literacy. We discuss the role emotions and the wall of awful play in people's financials, money as it relates to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the importance of having a reservoir of savings for when problems arise, the power of doing good for others, ADHD meltdowns, and how automation allows overseeing, which is better than doing. All right, let's get rolling. I've been a Chad volunteer, I guess, for 22 years. I'm the founder of Renify. It's my life's passion and mission at the moment. It's an educational platform for finances and other emotional issues that surround all that with ADHD. I now work with Ada a decent amount. I have for three or four years now, maybe maybe longer, at least track of time. I know the Chad thing has been 22 years because I met the Chad group when my life was in a state of you know complete meltdown, but at least I had become diagnosed and I had a, I had a handle, I had a clue, I had an explanation for an inexplicable past. And I'll tell you that diagnosis, I've talked to thousands of people through Chad and stuff, getting properly diagnosed is huge. 
I know a lot of people read a book and they read the inventory in the back and they say, hey, I got 49 out of 50 questions. That's not a diagnosis. That's a self-observation and it has some value. It's my soapbox, I guess, but getting diagnosed to find out what's really going on is really important. So that's who I am. You know, I, I'm sure there's a lot more to that. Let's start with what Renify is. And then if you're comfortable, I'd love to jump into that meltdown and what that looks like. Renify, and the only way I can do this is to tell a little bit of history, and I'll try to be brief. It started a company called Socially Conscious Investments, which essentially was the job was to turn tenants into owners, property owners, because my background is in real estate, real estate development and lending. And when I was putting my life back together, you know, I'm not a rocket scientist. I don't know how to do that. I wasn't going to go back to school to be a lawyer. I knew about these things. And I also knew that in the financial world, the difference between the haves and have nots in this country is home ownership. That, there's a lot of differences, but that's one of the biggest ones. It's a factor of 35 to one in terms of financial net worth. So we ran into some issues once we ran out of money in raising more money to buy houses, because you might imagine they're expensive, especially these days. And we realized that what we were doing with people, these letters of gratitude that we were getting had to do with the financial information we were giving them. We were kind of taking our financial mindset, putting it into their life. And, and as everybody knows, and I don't know why nothing's being done about it, finance stuff is not taught in high school. It's not taught by their parents. If their parents didn't know it, it's a generational issue. So we said, hey, we can make a difference there. And with the internet, very scalable, we said, wow, we, we, you know, for a very reasonable cost, we can talk to zillions of people, basically, you know, thousands at least, and make that same difference. And then, you know, hopefully they can go buy their own house. I mean, socially conscious still exists, but we're not really doing those transactions. So we're completely focused in on the financial aspects. And we started with the world in, at large, you know, with lenders and labor unions that we have a contract with and, and things like that. But we got traction in the ADHD world, partly because I have 22 years worth of experience in that area. And I know a lot of people. So we started getting traction. We learned a lot more about it. And, you know, as Russell Barkley would, would, has researched, 61% of people with ADHD have chronic financial issues. And they're serious chronic financial issues. So it was really a perfect target audience for us because that's what we have to deliver. Well, as we delve down into that, specialized with the ADHD community, we realized, uh, it kind of had a dim awareness, but we really realized that it was about a lot more than math, right? We all know how to add and subtract. We learned that in fourth grade. We can do a budget. The budget is not the problem. I can teach someone how to do budgeting in, in five minutes and have four minutes left over. I really can, right? I'm not going to do it right now, but I really can. I mean, obviously, it's an oversimplification. What we found is it's all the emotional drivers beneath the surface. This this learned helplessness and this ADHD is a neurological brain function difference, but it can cause sometimes to just, you know, drive us into things like anxiety and you know, depression disorders and things. Yeah. You're talking about the wall of awful right now. The wall of awful affects people's financials just as much as it affects their productivity. Absolutely. And that's what we really, it hit us in the face that this wall of awful hit us and said, you know what? Teaching people how to budget, that's not it. That's not the problem. We, we can, we'll do that. But what we really need to do, and we bring in instructors that do this, we talk about being blindsided by emotions. We talked about, you know, finding your financial bliss, finding your purpose and meaning in life. We are largely based, if there's one foundational concept that we're based on, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Money is a deficiency need. Once you have enough, you have enough, right? right. More money is not going to really increase that happiness. But when you don't have enough, it's all you can think about. When you're worried about, you know, someone knocking on the door with an eviction notice, 
you can't be emotionally available to your kids. You, you, you can't live the rest of your life. Yeah. When I talk about Maslow, Maslow comes up a lot in my parent groups and workshops that I do and that kind of stuff. I don't think I've talked about it too much on the podcast. When I talk about it, I absolutely address those socioeconomic elements to it because you've got just real quick audience. You've got sort of your biological needs. Do I have enough food? Do I have warmth, water, sleep, that kind of stuff? Then you've got safety, which is, do I have shelter? Am I not being bullied and harassed? Do I feel safe? Up above that is connection and sort of love and belongingness and the social piece. And after that comes accomplishment. And that's where like school lives. That's maybe where your job lives, but your job can also live down below in safety, depending on how financially secure you are, depending on how well you're getting along with your boss, depending on how well you're performing at your job. Sometimes it's, I want to do well because I want to be the cool kid and I want to feel good about myself. Sometimes it's, I'm afraid that I'm not doing well and that I'm going to lose my job. So I'm trying to figure out how to do well, but I'm working from behind all the time. Absolutely. I've, I've been there. I completely understand that. It's difficult. It's crushing. And that's the socioeconomic piece, right? If Even if you're doing well in your job, but you're afraid that if you lose it, you're going to lose your house, you're still stuck. You're still in this really challenging spot. Once you make enough money to be able to breathe and go, oh, even if I lose this job, I will be able to find a new one and I won't lose my house immediately. I have enough of a cushion to survive like two or three months of job search or whatever. That stuff's critical. And then the top tier of Maslow is self-actualization. And if that's not money-based, I don't know what is, because you basically, you've got to be making, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars a year probably to care about self-actualizing, I would think. I don't think so. No, I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that. No, I don't think so. Go ahead. Because I love this stuff. I, you know, I live for this stuff. I really don't think so. I think water is a deficiency need for most of us, for everybody. So once you rented an apartment and you have a reliable tap where you can turn it on anytime you want and get a glass of water, you are no longer going to be concerned about water. Right. If you're out in the desert and you don't have water, that's the only thing you're going to be concerned about, right? Because you're going to live for three days, right? Right. Money is the same way. Money is a deficiency need. Once you have enough, whether you go from a million dollars to $10 million, you might gain a little bit in happiness, a little bit, but not that much. It's a curve that goes up, up, and it levels out. It doesn't completely level. Money at the lower end, being a deficiency need, if you don't have enough to pay your rent, to put shoes on your kids' feet and stuff, then it becomes all you can think about and it's crucial. But above that, once you get flying straight and level, you don't need more money to achieve those higher levels. You know, it's nothing wrong with having more money, but it's not the thing that's going to do it for you. I guess I'm, I'm not thinking money in that regard. I'm thinking time, right? I'm thinking you make enough money to not have to spend as much time working and that opens up the door for self-actualization. Totally agree. So the way I look at it, think of a reservoir. You got a river coming in one side, you got stuff going out the other side. You know, you've got all your income coming in, you've got your expenses going out. You've got a reservoir, which is your, either your, it's your emergency fund, which is like a thousand bucks. So you can fix your car to get to work immediately available in a demand account. And you might have three to six months worth of living expenses in this reservoir, which you keep in a securities account so that you actually get a return on it. And that's what we teach. You don't want to put that in a bank account, but you want it somewhere stable and secure. So then when you have that cushion, COVID-19 comes along and you say, oh my gosh, I don't get to work for a while. I got to stay home and my income's been cut to nothing. Or You have a reservoir to feed from. You don't start living off of your credit cards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And this reservoir is not wasted because if you never use it, it just becomes part of your retirement account. It's your, it's your assets. So the part I, I took issue with, and I agree with everything, but you don't need a lot of money to work on the upper. I, I consider that I'm working on some of those higher levels. I, I, I've dealt with my money stuff. I'm not rich, but I, I don't worry about the money. Whether Renify hasn't turned a profit. And, you know, my business group, people say, Rick, when are you going to turn a profit? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't really care, right? I, I will fund this thing for as long as it takes because that's not what it's about for me. What really made sense for me were the letters of gratitude. That's what, that's what floated my boat, not whether we were making money or not. And what do you mean by letter of gratitude? Is it just people writing thank you notes kind of stuff or is that something else? Oh, I got one, I got one six weeks ago, maybe seven weeks ago we changed the trajectory of this family's life. To me, that's more powerful than making $5,000. We changed that trajectory. You know, they always talk about how healthy gratitude is. And I believe it is. We should, be, we should have gratitude for the things in our life. But there's something above that somehow, and that is inspiring gratitude in others. That's reaching those higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy needs. And to receive a letter like that, it's really a powerful thing. That's what I work for. That I... That's beautiful. Like that's what, that's what I wish everyone could work for, that everyone could be working for other people. And that was the purpose of their stuff. I mean, I'm in the same boat, like my job, I don't do my job because I enjoy it and it makes me feel good. It, I do enjoy it. It does make me feel good, but I do it to help people. I do it so that the people who cross my path leave better off for having met me and work with me. That's the whole purpose of including this podcast, which like I, I do this for free. Like no one, I don't get paid for this. So I, I'm right there with you. That's, that's the power of finding the place where you can do the most good. And that takes us back to Maslow again, to me. You got the deficiency need of water, you deal with it. You got deficiency need of money, you deal with it. When you have a stable platform, it doesn't have to be zillions of dollars. If you have a stable platform where all your bills are paid, you have a little leftover to go do a vacation or buy nicer clothes, whatever it is that you want to do. Once you clear that hurdle, you have a solid platform to stand on to do everything else. You don't need to make another million dollars. You don't even need to make 100000 Once you have a stable platform, you don't worry about the money anymore, which is why, I'm not going to get political here, but it is why the universal basic income would be such an incredible thing for people in this country, all of them, including the wealthy. It would be incredibly important to level this field a little bit and make sure everybody has a stable platform to be able to live the life they want, because people would produce, if you want to call it that, far more value in society if they weren't worried about how to get their rent paid, if they weren't worried about being evicted. I can see that just based on my own life, where this podcast, ADHD Essentials business thing that I run, I only get to do it because when my career fell apart, my wife was making enough money to keep us solvent, to keep us on a stable platform, relatively. It was extra stressful because if she lost her job for any reason, and like any company, there were periods of turmoil within the business. But if she lost her job for any reason, we were hosed quick because there wasn't a backup one with me because I was going back to school and then I was building this. But once this got built, now we're okay. Now she could lose her job and we'd figure it out. We'd be okay. It wouldn't be easy because she's a big chunk of our income, but we would still figure it out. So I can understand that because there were times when I felt that pressure of like, well, what if Amy loses her job? Then we don't have health insurance. Then everything falls apart. Da, da, da. And I was like, maybe I just go work at Wegmans and like I'm a supermarket guy. 
that's money. That's a job. That's a thing. Like there's that desperation that comes with it. And you're not doing the thing that lets you contribute the most that you can contribute. Because certainly there are folks working at Wegmans who that's their deal. That's their jam. It, they're contributing phenomenally there. I'm not that guy. This is where I contribute most effectively. So being able to point yourself in a direction that's more useful for more people instead of pointing yourself in a direction that's more useful for yourself, I guess, more money for you, I can understand that perspective. And I, I know I'll keep bringing it back to Maslow. We can work on various levels. I think Maslow himself modified that a little bit later on. We can work on various levels, but the stronger the foundation is, the platform that we're standing on, the better we're able to reach those, those other levels of, of his hierarchy of needs. The guy came up with this in like 1943 or something, like, like 80 years ago, and it's so germane today. So just to be kind of clear, because I know a lot of people are working somewhere where they don't really feel they're getting a lot of meaning and benefit from it because they are making sure they're paying the rent and they need that. I think we can do both. You know, I've had lots of jobs in my life where I was only there for a paycheck. Now, after my financial meltdown, I, I said, I'm never doing that again. I, I, one of my global parameters for myself, I'll never work for us for a paycheck again. But when I was in the, in, you know, life 2.0 or whatever it was, building a family, yeah, I was working for a paycheck. I wanted to buy a washer and a dryer and a house and, you know, car, get the kids to school and get into a good school district area. Yeah, I was working for a paycheck in order to make other parts of my life work. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I just believe that we can move beyond the basic income part, you know, the serving coffee at Starbucks. We can move beyond that at some point. But that's a platform of itself. If you, if you need to pay the rent, you've got to make sure that's done. You know, you need, if you want water, you've got to rent an apartment that has running water, right? So we have to accomplish those things. Back to what you were saying about, you know, your significant other losing her income possibly, and that's kind of scary. We teach that in all the time. That's the reservoir. Depending on the stability of the income and the amount of expenses going out, you need a reservoir. And, and the rule of thumb is three to six months worth of your expenses, your minimum expenses, right? If you get in trouble, you know, obviously you can cancel Netflix, right? But you can't cancel your car payment. You can't cancel your rent payment. I use rules of thumb because it's, it's the only way I know how to communicate. But the fact is they're oversimplifications. If you work for the post office and it's very stable, maybe you only need two months, right? And, and you love the work and they love you. Maybe you only need two months. But if you're self-employed, like a lot of people with ADHD, or you tend to lose your job a lot because you yell at the boss. I mean, we got to be honest with ourselves about things. In that position, maybe you need eight months or 12 months. I can tell you, I wouldn't have gotten Renify off the ground if I didn't have 24 months worth of, of ability to support this thing. So the reservoir is directly related to the stability of your income and the, and the, the fixed expenses that you have. And it allows you to move beyond scarcity, right? Because that scarcity mindset and this is not something I think I've ever talked about in the show. When you're in a scarcity mindset for whatever the thing is that is scarce, as you've already said, that's the only thing you think about. If you don't have enough money, you're thinking about money. If you don't have enough food, you're thinking about food. If you don't have enough time, oh, wonderful listeners, and also me, you're thinking about time a lot because that's the thing you don't have enough of. That's the nature of a scarcity mindset. And it also causes you to make poor decisions because you're so focused on the thing that you don't have enough of that you're missing out on other opportunities. You're not noticing other things that, that might help you get more of what you need because you're too busy thinking about how you don't have enough. A straightforward example of that for me is I, I don't have enough time. I, I don't. And it's just the nature of COVID and all of the different hats that I'm wearing. 
And there are times when my wife is like, how can I help you? And probably there are ways that I could get her to help me, that I could be like, if you can do this, this, and this, then that would be huge. But figuring out how to have her help me is exhausting two of the things that I have a scarcity of right now, time being one of them. And the other one is just being sort of executive function bandwidth, like the ability to think and plan. I'm doing so much of that that I don't have much left. And I'm not willing to sacrifice those things in order to spend a half an hour coming up with how she could save me four hours of time over the course of the week. So instead, I'm stuck in this less than optimal situation. That's an interesting concept. I, I teach a business class of entrepreneurs with, with ADHD. Maybe I'm a wordsmithing this a little bit, but I caught that you said, perhaps I could get her to help me. That's kind of a sense, if I read the subtext, is like, I should be able to do this myself. But I, you know, she's offered. Mm-hmm. I would actually reframe that. You know, I think words are important and say, I could allow her. She wants to. She sees that you're struggling and she's your significant other. She wants to help. So could you allow her to help you? I mean, that's, you know, I don't want to be gender biased here, but guys frequently have a hard time letting someone help them. Yeah, that's a huge reframe for me right now. There's a lot going on in my head. Thank you for that. That's going to be, that's going to be helpful in the coming months and years. Well, we all want domestic tranquility too, right? So, and, yeah. and, and not just with my wife, but people in general. I'm really bad, like a lot of ADHD people, not just men. I'm really bad at accepting help and asking for help and knowing when I need help and all that stuff. That is not a strength of mine. And it's something I'm working on. You might have just helped me move up a tier in getting help and improving my skill in that area. Well, I'll send you a bill. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's circle back to some of the stuff you mentioned earlier that I said that I was going to circle back on and haven't yet. And I want the audience to be like, you said you were going to have them talk about the meltdown because oh. let's be honest, some of them have ADHD and that's exciting and an interesting idea. Can we circle back on that? What does that look like? And how does that inform where you are now? It informs where I am right now, 100%. 100%. And I want to be careful how I frame this story because I, I know the story resonates with people. When I was in the midst of this, I really felt like I was the only one. My life is as bad as anybody's could possibly get. And I, and I had good evidence for that. But now coming out the other side, 20 years later, I realized that I'm not an uncommon story. People in the 80s world, we have these meltdowns, and, and they're all really serious to the person that's involved in it. Some of them are worse than mine. Some of them are better. You know, it's just difficult. And so I really want to make the point that this is not a unique story to me. Maybe the details are, but this, the ADHD meltdown is it's, it's normal. My life had been lily pad to lily pad, hoping I didn't fall in, never had a reserve, never had a, you know, a safety net under me on doing different things. And it was generally an uphill, up, upward trajectory. I have certain skills and I have certain education and I've had a lot of privilege and advantage and it put me in a position to do things. And, and so I was, I was doing real estate investment and um, development and lending and that sort of stuff. And, and, and I was good at it. But the problem was I never operated with any kind of safety net. I never dealt with any of the things that we're teaching people with Renify how to deal with. So I think the lesson to me is my life has been in a set series of stages. You know, I look back at, you know, I'm 68. Back when I was in college, the crucible in which I, I was forged was college idealism, right? We were trying to end a war, civil rights, all those different, well-meaning, what we now know as the hype mentality. We were just all in that. And, you know, admittedly, there were mixed results of that generation, for sure. Every generation post and, 
and Pryor has had mixed results in the things they're trying to do. But that's where we were at. That was the mindset. There was a lot of self-indulgence and self-righteousness that infected that message and made it misunderstood and such. But that's what was going on there to do something meaningful in our life. And so there was that stage of college idealism. And then, of course, I, I graduated. That was a tough one. <laughs> it was tough for me to graduate because I, I learned rather quickly, but I never turned in my homework. I don't, I don't do the work, right? That's always been a problem. I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had no idea. I didn't even know what ADHD was. So I didn't graduate. And I got married and you know, fell in love, got married, had four kids, four daughters. I'm so proud of them. They're all adults now. So there was that stage where it was like nose to the grindstone. Hey, you got to put life together here. You've got, you've got a lot of responsibilities going on here. So there was that. And then, as I said, I never seemed to operate with a safety net. This is details, I guess, but I found out very early I was better at buying properties than I was at representing buyers and sellers, right? I, I got a broker's license. I that'll work, but I couldn't do it. But when it came to making deals with individuals, it was a piece of cake. These late night kind of hucksters that talk about if they were put down in a foreign city, they could. They could buy a house for $3,000 in two weeks. Well, I'm kind of one of those guys. I could do that. But the fact is, that's not a, a smart thing to be doing. So I was buying properties, cross-collateralizing, doing all kinds of things with no safety net whatsoever. And, and I cut a lot of corners. I think that's an ADHD thing. It's also a character thing. I'll take responsibility for that. Cut a lot of corners. And so when it fell apart, like a house of cards, it fell apart in a huge way. Everything went. There was some legal involvement stuff. There was... Um, you know, obviously the financial meltdown, everything was cross-collateralized. So not only all the investments away, went away, but my house went away. My career went away, right? Because who's going to do business with you at that point? Still had my license and everything, but all that went away. And I, I actually had to borrow 5000 from my parents. I'm, I'm glad I was able to do that to get the money to, to go down and live with my in-laws in Mexico City with my four kids and, and wife, right? It was a devastating experience. I was doing quite well. And now I'm invisible kind of that took me eight or nine months just to recover to get the circuits to come back up in my brain but i did recover subprime era meltdown helped me that it's a, it's a detail but in the subprime era you could buy a house with a pulse you know if you could fog a mirror you could buy a house and 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 i had certain knowledge skills so i did a lot of that fixed houses because that's another thing i like i like fixing things so i accumulated a little pot of money and then i I said, you know, I'm not going to put my life together this way, the way it was before. I hired a coach, great coach, changed my life and moved forward and created a couple companies that, like I already said, the, the socially conscious investments kind of thing. So that was part of my recovery phase. And now that I'm kind of out the other side of that, I'm not rich, but I'm comfortably well off. I don't have to worry about where a paycheck comes from. I could be retired easily. I could just retire and say, you know, check out. You know, I could do whatever, I want. you know, I could watch Netflix the rest of my life. I don't want to, because maybe for the first time in my life, I realized what my life's about. All my stuff was stripped away and I realized, hey, I'm okay without my stuff. And I think that's a valuable lesson to learn. Hopefully people can learn it in an easier way. But when I learned that and I realized what is the meaning and purpose in my life and what am I looking for, that's really where socially conscious investments came from. And that morphed into Renify. And that's, I'm sure I left a lot of things out and probably included some things that didn't need to be in there, but that's where I'm at, right? I'm, I'm building Renify. It's a passion. It's purely a passion. I believe Renify can make a difference for people with ADHD, help them keep from going down to the same path that a lot of us have gone down, kind of spare them that. And it's not altruism that's doing that. It's because as we talked about earlier, it's Maslow's hierarchy needs. 
I'm working on those levels of Maslow's hierarchy needs for myself to climb that, that hierarchy. And the way I'm finding meaning and purpose is by giving back to this community. What are some of the pitfalls that you find people with ADHD get stuck in when it comes to finances? Really good question. When we first started, it was all about financial literacy. And what we realized as we found ourselves in the ADHD community, and it's probably true for others too, but it's especially true for the ADHD community. It's not about the math. It's not about adding and subtracting and, you know, column of income, column of outflow and, you know, figuring out what your budget is. It's not about that. Uh, That's obviously an important piece, but it's such a minor, it's such an easy piece to put in. The tougher pieces are what's driving what's essentially a lot of poor decisions. Why do you have a $1,200 Range Rover payment coming out of your checkbook every month on a depreciating asset, dramatically appreciating, when you don't own a house yet, when you're barely paying your rent? Why do you have that? What inside of you what needs are you meet, trying to meet by having that status symbol car, which is plummeting in value, to feel good about yourself? So it's all these emotional drivers below the surface that are important. Renee Crook, she's uh, on the board of ADA. She does a class for us called Blindsided by Emotions. It's one of the most popular classes we have because people instinctively or, or somehow they just unconsciously realize I'm not stupid. This is not about I can't balance my checkbook. I can do that easy. But for some reason, I keep getting these things in my checkbook that don't belong there. You know, I, I didn't know I wanted a kayak this morning, but now I've got one because I walked into a place and I just had to have it. So why? Why, why did I spend $700 on that? And especially why did I put it on a credit card at 18%? Now I've got a kayak, which I don't even know how to lift up to the top of my garage. So I still get a car in and I don't have the $700. I'm paying 18% on an incredibly depreciating asset. So it's not about the mechanics. It's about the emotional drivers of our behavior. Why did that happen? And I think we are, as Renee's class title is, blindsided by these emotions. Do you have any strategies for people to help them navigate those emotions or avoid the impulse buy of the kayak or anything like that? That's all we have. That's what we have at Renify. That's what we do. So, <laughs> but, so yes, there there are tips and strategies, which I, I see as the surface level. And then there's the deeper work. You need tips and strategies to find your keys in the morning, right? I, I put all my stuff I'm going to need tomorrow morning, literally in a shoebox. And, you know, my wallet, my keys, et cetera, they go in because I don't want to spend a half an hour looking for that stuff. And I certainly don't want to leave without something I need. Those are those tips and strategies. And then there's the deeper work. You know, why? Why are you losing your keys, right? There's probably some issue going on there because intellectually, when you come in the door, you know you should put them in a safe place where you can find them again, you know, in a routine place. In our financial world, we're climbing a ladder. You can see it as, as climbing a ladder. Every step takes effort. It's hard and it's slow and it, you know, it takes calendar time and clock time. It's hard. Falling off that ladder is really fast. It does a lot of damage when we hit the bottom. It damages our credit report. It damages our self-esteem. It, it crushes us in a way. And we end up with one more failure and learned helplessness starts creeping in. So the number one thing I would say to people, the simplest, straightforward strategy is wear a safety harness, find ways not to fall off that ladder. If you do fall, make sure you don't fall far. That's where we we talk about three to six months worth of minimal living expenses. You don't need to count Netflix in there because if you're really in trouble, you could cancel that. But you can't cancel your rent easily. You can't cancel your car payment easily. So three to six months worth of that keep you from falling off that ladder when something like COVID-19 hits and you're out of work for a while. 
or anything. I mean, ADHD, we, we job hop a lot and it's not, it's frequently not by choice. It's because we yelled at the boss, you know, or we got angry and quit, you know, things like that happen. Some of that's actually good. I'm, I'm glad that we can't spend 40 years in some dull, boring job, right? I'm, I'm actually glad, right? Because we can't do it. Somebody else might spend 40 years in a windowless office, you know, crunching numbers or whatever it is that they're doing <laughs> just for that paycheck. But an ADHD person, they'll quit. They won't be able to do it. And it causes a lot of trouble. But once we find our place, we're driven by passion. In fact, Brendan, I, I, there's something you mentioned earlier, and I really want to go back to it. I see two broad categories of motivation. There's fear. Saber-toothed tigers chasing you. You run really fast. The adrenaline is flowing. It's crisis management, which we're really good at. You climb the tree. Tiger goes away. It's bored. It didn't get this meal. You were the meal, right? It, it didn't get that. And now you're exhausted, you know, tortoise and hare, you're exhausted. So you fall asleep at the side of the road. You spend the rest of the day picking berries or something. That's fear. It'll only get you away from the problem. It'll only get your rent paid. It will not accumulate a retirement account, for example. And then there's attraction, right? There's fear, there's attraction. Attraction is what got us to the moon. We didn't have to go to the moon. I mean, ignore the geopolitical nonsense that was going on. But the fact is, we didn't have to go to the moon. We went there because we wanted to. We decided as a society, as, as humans, if we're attracted to a goal, if we can get in touch with our future self and say, you know what, if I keep making these decisions, three years from now, that's what my life's going to look like. I, want, I don't want it to look like that. I want it to look like something else. When we're clear about that future vision for ourselves, we're attracted to that vision and it's much more powerful force. It's carrot and stick. We're always motivated by both, but we want to get away from the fear, meet all the deficiency needs. I don't want to be afraid I can pay my rent. Can't pay it. I want to be attracted to, you know what, I'm, I, I'm paying my rent just fine, but you know what, I'd like to, I'd like to own a condo. Why, well, I, I don't want to rent for the rest of my life. So now I'm attracted to something. I have a goal and it's easier to work towards it if you have a vision for where you're trying to go. As you've been talking, I'm, of course, thinking about my finances in some small measure. And one of the things I've been thinking about is how my billing cycles work because I, in my business, I have to bill people, right? And if I have a month where I get like a good amount of money early, like I do a workshop or something that's just so I have significantly more money coming in for August than ordinary, I get bad at billing my clients for the rest of the month because that scarcity, that fear is gone, right? Like, oh, I don't have enough money. Ah, that goes poof because I had a big influx for whatever reason. And Honestly, I'm not that attracted to money. Like money is not a thing that motivates me. It's not a thing I'm interested in. If I could never have to pay attention to money for the rest of my life, it would be fine. Like I wouldn't change what I was doing. So I will gladly continue working with my clients and just not charge them because I'm getting reward, a sense of reward from working with them and seeing their progress and knowing that I've helped. And all of that stuff is much more rewarding for me than whatever that client is paying me. And so I think that phenomenon is, is wrapped up in your what you're just saying, where it's the scarcity, the anxiety of the fear of, I don't have enough money. Once that's navigated, then it's, well, what are you attracted to? What, where do you want to go? And where I want to go is, I want to keep doing the stuff I'm doing. I just don't want to bill you. Like, <laughs> and some of that is because once I've had enough money, there's still some, some anxiety in billing because I don't know. I don't want to offend you because I'm charging you too much. I don't want to like have accidentally already billed you once for this session. And I forgot that I billed you for this session. 
I don't want to like realize I've forgotten to bill you for a number of sessions and now I'm charging you a lot all at once because I messed up. That takes a lot of mental effort on my end to make sure that I'm consistently billing on a weekly basis. It's got to be scheduled. It's, it can't get interrupted because if it does, it nukes me. That stuff is one of the more challenging aspects of my job. It's wrapped up in exactly what you're disguise, describing here. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I teach and coach entrepreneurs with ADHD for our classes. I've done that for years. Can I give you a little advice? I, I know. Sure. Yeah. I'm not the only one who knows stuff. <laughs> well, I, I just, you know, it's an ADHD thing. We've all gotten so much free advice in our lives that it just, it, it's, it sparks an oppositional side in me anyway, when someone's telling me, well, if I were in your shoes, I would do such and such. I'd say, no, you're in my shoes. You do exactly what I'm doing because I'm doing the best I know how to do. Yeah. Right. It, it's nonsense to say if I were in your shoes. From what you're just saying, and I had an entire, when I was trying to get back on my feet 22 years ago, I had a great business idea. I'm positive to this day. My top agent referral network for realtors was, was just dynamite idea for one of the first things on the internet. And it would have been great. That entire business fell apart. I had people signing. It's like 85% of people I talked to, the agents I talked to, they signed up with me immediately. And it was a small cost to it. I didn't send out the bills. The entire thing fell apart because I didn't send out the bills. Well, it was about the time I realized I had ADHD that I hadn't done much about it yet, rather than take some medication, which is important, but there's more to it. So what we teach at Renify on the, on the personal level, this is going to apply to what you're saying too. If you want to automate everything so that you're not doing, you're overseeing, right? I don't pay my utility bill. I don't. It gets paid because it's automated. I simply oversee it to make sure, oh, did my credit card expire? I need to update that. I oversee it. So I eliminate 95% of the work, meaning 95% of the bandwidth that I have to apply to that. And when it's automated, let's flip over to what you're doing now. If, if you've got clients, I have coaching clients that I don't build them. It, it just happens, right? Now, if they've dropped out, I have to go in and say, you know, don't build this person, right? Or if I get a new person, I have to go in and set them up on it. But it just happens. My bank, through ACH or whatever, it bills their, it basically sucks money out of their checking account, but with their prior agreement, I don't have to pay attention to that. And Renify, we, we charge 20 bucks a month. I don't pay any attention to that. I'm not trying to go through the list of people and say, oh, bill, 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 bill. I'm simply saying, until you tell us otherwise, we're going to bill you for $20 a month, right? So, and corollary here is you got to make it really easy for them to cancel because you don't want people pissed off. And you certainly, you don't even want them paying you if, they, if they're not getting value, right? I'm, you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for the value. So you put all those people as much as you can in some automated system, which is front-loaded. It takes more work to get it going. But once you've done it, your, your bandwidth will be freed up. And we all have a limited amount of bandwidth. I don't care how smart you think you are. Limited bandwidth. We, our brain is whatever it is. It's this size. It's not out in the cloud. Not yet anyway. The fact is we have a very limited amount Simplifying our lives is a major ADHD remediation technique. It may sound silly, but I've, I've simplified so many different things. I have 15 shirts identical to this one. And the reason is I don't want to think about what I put on in the morning. I just reach in and grab a clean shirt. Now, obviously, if I'm going to a business meeting where I have to be dressed up a little bit, I do, right? But 90% of my days, this shirt, these shoes, these pants, they're all identical. When I buy a pair of pants, I, I buy five at a time. When I buy shirts, I buy five at a time. I don't want to, in my opinion, waste my bandwidth on something that's not important to me. That was a tangent. But the fact is, if you could go back to your client situation there, 
and automate all that billing because the money's not important to you any more than the shirt's important to me, right? Right. It's a practical reality. And then another thing, you know, I see this in the helping field, that therapists and coaches, they feel badly about billing for their services. And I, I, I see a place for sliding scale. There's a lot of people that really need the help and you, you have the ability to help them. But we also have to say, you know what, I'm going to put my own oxygen mask on first. I'm not going to be a pig in the trough, but I need to take care of myself. If I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of very many other people. You certainly can't scale your operation if you're still worried about whether you're billing people or not. To me, scale is the ability to apply effort with leverage. And to me, that's a purpose-driven life. That's, that leaves a footprint. You can help three people, but if you can scale up to help 300 people, that's a bigger footprint. Then your podcast is an attempt to do that. But you can't be held back by the mundane, oh, did I send the person a bill? Automation is on my list of things to do when the boys go to summer camp. Okay. I've got a big list of stuff I need to do once the kids are at summer camp. And it'll be my first time in over a year where I've been on my own because I they've been home. I've homeschooled my boys this whole time. Yeah. So I haven't had, that's part of why I have no bandwidth in time is if I'm not doing the business, I'm homeschooling my kids or I'm sleeping kind of. But come June, they go to camp and I'm going to have six hours a day where I don't have to be responsible for another living creature except my dog for six hours a day, which is fantastic. And that means I can be responsible for my business, which is, uh, it's been a little atrophied of late or maybe not atrophied, but hibernation. We definitely have a limited bandwidth and that's not to be dismissive of anybody. We all have a limitation on what we have. And so we have to work with what we have and the the more leakage we can eliminate. And to me, picking a shirt in the morning is leakage, right? It, it, it might seem really minor, but maybe it's five minutes, but whatever it is, it doesn't take any of my thought, any significant amount. And if you simplify like 10 different areas of your life, you begin to see a real change. Just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, the Escher drawings where you see the birds flying one way or then fish are swimming the other way. It's a fact of our brain. You cannot see both at the same time. And to me, that contains a profound truth. You cannot be the victim of a lifelong, across the lifespan, disorder and deficit. That's victimhood. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but that's victimhood. You cannot be that and take control of your life and do something about it at the same time. You can do, you can flip back and forth maybe, but the more time you spend on the side that says, you know what, I got this hand of cards, I'm playing it, I'm going to play it the best I can. The more time we spend there, the more control we have that we, we take control, take responsibility for, the more, the more powerful we get doing the things in life that we want. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.